If you've got your Bibles, which I hope you do, and if not, you can grab your app or whatever, there are 25 really impressive verses. And that shouldn't shock you, because there is no place in the Bible where there is 25 verses that aren't impressive. But the 25 verses I'm talking about are wedged between Titus chapter 3, verse 15, and Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. They are the 25 verses known as the book of Philemon. And it's a very small book, but powerful. It's a short book, but very mighty. Uh, it's one of those that, to be honest, you know, sometimes, depending on how much moisture is in the air, you have a hard time getting to, uh, just because the pages stick. It's not one that we read very often. Well, I obviously have been reading it uh, over the past couple of weeks and, and kind of looking at it. It's been speaking to me. Uh, I would encourage you in your own time to read it, although we could plow through 25 verses here pretty quick. But you know, there's one verse in particular that we're going to study this morning, uh, because it's a wonderful story of Paul petitioning and talking to Philemon. And the issue at hand is this servant, this slave known as Onesimus. And what Paul asks of Philemon to do is, is to accept him and embrace him and to forgive him and everything like that and to render whatever he's owed unto Paul's account. And a great story because it's such a wonderful parallel to the role of Jesus, where Jesus petitions on our behalf and says to God, whatever they aren't able to do, put that on my account. But as you read through it, 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 it the book starts much like, you know, so many other books uh, that, that Paul writes, you know, who he's writing to and who it's coming from and, and everything like that. But then he gets down to, and this is where we pick it up. And we get down to verse 8. Now, the cool thing about Philemon is it doesn't really matter. I won't even tell you what chapter we're in because there's only the one chapter. I can just go verse 8. And, and so nobody should get thrown off. But we get to verse 8. And verse 8 just jumped out at me. And part of the reason, I understand before I get to part of the reason it jumped out to me, there is, for those of you that travel through the Atlanta airport, if you go through Terminal A, kind of back in, you kind of have to be looking for it, or because otherwise you don't really know it's there, but you kind of come back in under some elevators and whatnot. There's this kind of this really neat pizza place, and they do kind of these little brick oven pizzas, and it's kind of small, and like I said, you know, everyone's in line for Chick-fil-A, I don't know why, or, or anything like that. But anyways, they, they do a wonderful pizza, and uh, the, my favorite is one that's it's kind of a of a salami with prosciutto, and then they do this nice little arugula salad. But anyways, beside the point. And I was sitting there just trying to mind my own business and certainly mind my own pizza. And I happened to strike up a conversation. No, he struck it up with me. I don't really strike up conversations with strangers. Okay, sorry about that. You guys never would have believed that one. But anyways, and somehow we got on the topic of church. And one of the things that he said to me was the reason that he struggles with religion because there's just too many rules. He struggles with going to church because there's just way too many commandments. And that always just sort of just, and I, you know, I kind of 
tried to kind of talk through it with them and, you know, didn't really, I don't know if I had a great response or anything like that. Um, you know, certainly at the time, you know, I've, I just, I don't, I didn't really know what to say. And, but this idea that there's too many commandments, there's too many rules, just, just stuck in my head because then I get to verse eight as Paul is writing this. And what Paul says is, therefore, though I have enough confidence in Christ to order you to do that which is proper. And it just, it, it just, it just rang a bell with me. That is, Paul is going to talk to Philemon. Paul says very clearly and explicitly, I have the confidence enough to order you to do that which what I'm about to ask you to do. I feel, now understand that, that there really, that although there was, you know, some apostolic authority going on at this time, it wasn't like there was this hierarchy or anything like that. It wasn't that Philemon reported to him in some kind of weird structure or anything like that. But instead, what Paul is saying is, I have confidence that I could command you to do this. And this word that he uses that comes across as command or force or or anything like that is is a word, epitaso, is the Greek word. And it's a neat word. Because it quite literally means to command. But not just command, but I mean to really command. To command with authority. In fact, this is the only time that Paul will use this word in any of his writings. He will urge people, he will direct people, he will tell people what to do. This is the only time he uses a word that's rooted this way. In fact, if you want to see other places where this word is used and exclusively used, you've actually got to go back to the Gospels. And you've got to look at places like Mark chapter 9, verse 25. When they are marveling over the fact that Jesus was able to rebuke an unclean spirit that was in a boy and command that spirit to leave him. That's when that word gets used. Or that word got used as the disciples were talking in Luke chapter 8. And they, they, they kind of had to deal with the, the, the sea that was hung out all over the place. And Jesus got up and Jesus told the sea to settle down. And it did. And that word, epitaso, is what the word is the word that the disciples used when they talked about even the sea obeys his commands. And I looked at that and I thought, you know what? I'm going to study commands. I'm going to dig through. And, and so I, I did. And I looked for every place that I could find in the Bible. You know, use of the word command or, or directive or expectation or specific instruction. And I just said, you know what? I'm going to study that. The word command is used 953 times in about 860 verses. And I went to them. To understand, because part of it, well, I was bothered by what that gentleman said, but encouraged by what Paul said. And so I went through that. And I went through that, you know, and, and you strip away some of the, the orders that are just sort of part of the day and part of kind of doing things. You know, the, the Bible talks about how Joseph gave orders for grain, you know, bags to be filled with grain. Okay, okay, let's kind of put that aside. I'm looking for those religious, you know, those coming from the top kind of orders. You know, there's places where, you know, Joseph of Arimathea went and approached Pilate 
for the body of Jesus. And the, the word that the, the Bible uses is then Pilate commanded that the body be given to Joseph, the Ethiopian, uh, the Ethiopian eunuch, as he was studying in, in his chariot, commanded that his chariot stop so that he may be baptized. Okay, I'm not talking about those patches. And there's a lot of those. And what I was able to do is I was able to come up with five types of commands. Now, you could look at this and you could do something different. My right hand has five fingers. It kind of worked out that way. Now, if your right hand has six, you can have a list that's six. Please just don't get up in the pulpit and do this because that'll freak a lot of people out. But anyways, five that I came up with. just, just, Just baskets. I see that there are, you know, commands that... That reconcile us to God. You know, specific commands. Repent and be baptized. The sole purpose of that command and that instruction is so that we can be reconciled to God. You know, that's the, and, you know, to arise, to be baptized, you know, all of it, to repent. To, it, that's so that we can be reconciled to God. So I saw, you know, there's some of them that fall into that category. I see the word remain. I had to come up with five R's too. Remain. You know, that there are commands that help us remain reconciled to God, that keep us reconciled to God. And a lot of those commands have to do with specific sins. I mean, those are the ones that we're used to when we, when we read, you know, like in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17, when the, the Bible, actually that entire chapter in Ephesians chapter 4 talks about kind of the old and the new and that in the new there are certain things we just don't do anymore. Verse 17 says, hey, if you used to steal, you stop stealing. That there are things that we just don't do if we want to remain reconciled to God. First Corinthians chapter 6, that's one we go to, 9 and 10, talks about specific things that if you want to stay reconciled to God, if you want to see heaven, you just don't do. And so I put those in kind of that second category, remaining reconciled to God, the things, the sins that to avoid. And then I get to things like, then I come up with the word reveal, that there are commands that are there that quite literally reveal to us the true nature of God. That when God's people are asked to do something, I'll get to a couple more examples here in a second, but when God's people are asked to do some things, it actually, what ends up happening in all of this is that God's nature is more fully revealed to them. The fourth one, relate. Not relate to each other, but this idea of these commands that relate us, that align us with God's plan. You can go to Acts chapter 11. And you can go to many times in the book of Acts where people were instructed to go a particular place. You can look in the Old Testament. We're studying the book of, of Genesis right now. And time and time again, where God directed his people, I want you to go from here to here. I want you to do X, Y, and Z. I want you to go preach to these people. And he was speaking to people that were reconciled unto him. He was speaking to people that were part of him and everything like that. But he had a plan. And so, you know, kind of that specific commandment, that specific direction, that expectation was to align them with God's will. He had a plan. They might not have understood it, but he had a plan. And the fifth one is, the, the fifth R is the word receive. That there were commands. In the Bible, people were asked to do for the sole purpose of the receiving of God's blessing. That the embodied within that command 
was something that was good for the person that was going to obey, the person that was going to receive it. Not, not just sort of salvation that had already been dealt with, but there was going to be a blessing. Now, the cool thing about the, my, my list of five is that, number one, it's my list, and so therefore I, of course, think it's cool. Your list may, like I said, have four, six, ten, whatever that is. We will still be good friends and everything like that. But the, the interesting thing about that list is that there are a lot of commands that were given. A lot of instructions that you will see God's people having received that aren't just one of those, but a couple of those. You go all the way back to 2 Kings chapter 5. Naaman had a problem with leprosy. I mean, everybody with leprosy had a problem with leprosy. Naaman had leprosy. Naaman was told, or word was given to him from Elijah, well, go into the Jordan River, rinse off seven times. Now, Elisha didn't like that. I don't know if he wanted just to have to do it once. He said, you know, some of these other rivers are better and everything. Why would I go into that? He was actually told by his staff there in verse 13, you should certainly obey him who tells you to do this. And the Bible goes on to say he did, and after that happened, Leprosy went away. And and I tell you that because there was nothing magical in and of itself about the water. So in that command, when he finally obeyed the command, he received a blessing from God, but he also was revealed unto him the nature of God. That the God who is over infirmities, the God that is over the physical universe, can use the dirty waters of the Jordan River and clear that which medical people couldn't possibly deal with. I look at Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4. In Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4, there is reference made to marriage. And it says, Marriage is to be held in honor among all, and the marriage bed is to be undefiled for fornicators and adulterers. God will judge. Okay, so that touches a couple things too. That touches the idea of remaining reconciled to God. God does not like adultery. Time and time again, that's said in no uncertain terms. And so we see that. And so so in this command, we get that R of remaining reconciled unto God. But you know what else we see? We get to receive the blessing of a wonderful marriage. We see that God's command doesn't just keep us united with him. It keeps us united with our spouse. It keeps marriages united, and we understand in this day and age, if you really want to mess up a family, mess up Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4. If you really want to ruin a relationship between two people, transgress Hebrews 13, verse 4. You just think that the hell that awaits on the other side is the only punishment here and now, talk to the child from a marriage or Hebrews 13, verse 4. And again, not to beat this drum too much, but you begin to understand that some of these instructional moments cover more than just one. And what I'd like about it, again, so I come back to chapter 8, or excuse me, verse 8. And I come back to that, okay, and so Paul says it is with confidence that I can give this to you. 
that I can give this commandment. Now, one of the things that as I go back and, and I've looked at kind of those various commandments and everything like that, there are a couple of characteristics. These are very, very important. And that is at no point in any of the commandments from God, either spoken by God, spoken by one of his ordained people, spoken by one of his prophets or anything, at no point in time has a commandment ever been issued that was sort of the command of, of a tyrant. Where it was just this chest thumping, you will do it, and this just as if to oppress or anything like that. You'll never see a command like that. You will never see a command that is arbitrary. You'll never see a command or a directive that is random. Now, it may not have made sense at the time. Like, I'm sure it did not make sense at the time when Joshua explained to people that we're going to march six times and then we're going to do seven. I mean, I mean that probably did not make sense in the moment. But as we understand the revelation of the nature of God and the nature of what obedience is like, it, it, it wasn't arbitrary and it wasn't random. It was never obscure. God's commands have never been obscure. They have never been ambiguous. They've never been unclear. They have never been sort of, you know, sort of in, in the shade of something else and, and obscured by anything else. It's, God has always been very direct about what his expectations are. He's never been, you know, you know, anything other than forthcoming. And, and I tell you that because as we walk through this, and if you turn to 1 John chapter 5, verse 3, it says, for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. Hey, great one. We understand. Keep his commandments. But notice that John adds this. And his commandments are not burdensome. That what John wanted people to understand was, hey, if we are to love God, one of the ways that we show God is in the way that we keep his commandments. And, oh, by the way, his commandments are not burdensome. And so that was my sermon. Easy. Don't get too excited. And what was exciting about that sermon, for you all anyway, first of all, to me it was it was really profound for me, life-changing to understand, you know, kind of how these commands worked. And what was going to be exciting for you was this was going to be a sermon that only had one point. And that point was that God's commands, God's directives, God's expectation are a blessing. That was the point of the sermon. Everything was great. You were about to be dismissed before 11 o'clock. But then I found point number two. And that's where we get the title of today's sermon, the power of point number two. Because for as powerful as point number one was, that God's commands, that God's direction, that God's instructions, as powerful it is that those are a blessing. And that we should, in confidence, speak about those as expectations and not sort of kind of shy away from them or anything like that. As wonderful as that is, point number two is far more powerful. Point number two is actually found in the following verse, the follow-up verse. So we started in verse 8. I kind of did a timeout in verse 8 and went and looked at all these and everything like that. But then we get to verse 9. Verse 9 is point number two. He says, therefore, he goes on, I have enough confidence in Christ to order you to do that. But then he gets to verse 9. And he says this, yet for love's sake, 
I rather appeal to you, since I am such a person as Paul, the agent, and now also a prisoner of Christ. Understand how this transition goes. I'm confident enough to tell you what to do. But instead, I'm going to ask you in love. For love's sake, I am going to make this request. And that becomes the genesis to point number two. Because point number two is obedience meets, but love exceeds. And this whole idea in all of this is that that there is something greater. Paul never shied away either from a directive, a command, or anything like that. And if and if Paul could you know take it to here, and there was an opportunity to take it to there, he would take it to there. That we, Paul was a zealot. And what Paul recognized in the transition from verse eight to verse nine was verse eight was strong unto itself, and at face value that, that, that was pretty strong. But verse nine. Oh, verse 9 is a whole lot more compelling. Because in verse 8, he was asking Philemon to be obedient. But in verse 9, he was acting, asking him to act as an expression of his love. And, and if we just think just secularly for just a second, and we understand the difference, and, 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 and just kind of wrap your head around it sort of secularly, and then we're going to bring back, we'll add some Bible to it, and, and understand how this pertains to us and everything like that. But we understand it from a work perspective. I've been in a position where I have had to tell people what to do. Now, not just sort of, you know, where I've had to either issue directives or policies or anything like that. And I don't just mean, you know, sort of, hey, you know, just, but I mean, where I know that they wanted to do something different. I know that they wanted to go left, and they needed to go right. I know that they wanted to do this, this, and this. And there were times, and I, you know, never shied away from it. I didn't try to do it in sort of a hossy way or in a, in a big flex sort of way. But I said, no, this is what we're going to do. And there were decisions I had to make that way. There were times I had to compel people to work on holidays. I know they didn't want to. And to be perfectly frank, I didn't want them to. But things were needed to get done. We needed to accomplish things. And so there were times that I would tell them. And they respected the authority. But they weren't really excited about it either. I mean, they showed up that day. They weren't early. <laughs> and they didn't really stay late. They were obedient. But then there were times when all I had to do was paint a picture and describe something that I thought we could achieve. And when they wrapped their head around it, the most important thing I had to do was not give orders, not give commands, not give directives, but simply get out of the way. I love those times. Because I watched us accomplish way more then what would have happened if I had said, first do this, and then do this, and then do this? Why? Because obedience meets expectations. Love exceeds. I think of my boys, and I can pick on both of them since they're both not here. Uh, Brady's still off at school, and, and, so, and Brendan is preaching out in Andover, so I'm, I'm, in, I'm in safe territory. I know you guys will tell them or anything like that. But there were times on a Saturday morning, when I had to compel them to help around the house. 
I mean, there were times that I had to tell them the night before or two nights before, because apparently that's what their union said, <laughs> you know, that, okay, they needed 48 hours advance notice and everything like that. And, and everything like, and, and then I'd check with the, you know, the union steward, my wife and those, okay. Yep. But anyways, <laughs> but there were times when there was just, you know, yard work or whatever it was. And the only way it got done was I told them we were going to work. The expectation was they were going to work, and work starts at 7 a.m. For those of you thinking that there's any other 7 (laughs) o'clock. And at 6.59 and a half, you know, we were looking for shoes. (laughs) 7 o'clock, they were there. I don't know that they were fully awake or anything, but it didn't matter. And then we worked. And then they held me to whatever I said. Okay, well, we will work till 12. 12? Uh, you know, so at 12 o'clock. I mean, it just... It, but then there were times. And again, mostly, and it came with maturity. It came with age. When, when all of a sudden, I didn't have to say 7 o'clock. I didn't have to say 12 o'clock or 5 o'clock. And not only did we get more accomplished, but it was almost fun. I mean, it was tiring, but it was fun. People didn't just sort of, at 12, it's like, wow, we went and got something to eat. And we enjoyed that time together. And that's what happens. When when you try to meet an expectation, you just meet the expectation. When you obey, you just meet the expectation. But when love is involved, you exceed. If you were to ask my wife to see my report card as a husband... To look at my transcript, first of all, understand transcripts. I mean, that's, those are kept secret, like all transcripts should be, especially those. And, but you will see that I have some pretty good semesters, and I've had some not-so-good semesters as a husband. Never failed, but I definitely sort of got graded on a curve here and there. But, but if you look at those times when I got good grades... That wasn't the time when I was accomplishing things on the to-do list. We keep a to-do list. She keeps a to-do list. I I keep, I see a to-hope list, but okay. Anyways, what she would probably tell you is that the times that I did the best as a husband, better, let's say, weren't the times that I worked off the list. It, were the t- it was the times that I thought unselfishly, and I tried to anticipate what else might come on the list. And those times, I was probably a much better husband. That accomplishing, because m- doing things on the list meets expectations. But where love exists, things exceed. And I tell you that because obedience meets, love exceeds. And to understand this, and again, to understand why Paul describes it the way he does, is, you know, to, first, is to go back to verse 7, 
Because Paul gives us everything we need. I mean, we can go back to, you know, Jesus taught, and we understood, you know, this idea of how love and commandments meet. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And he was very certain about it. If we love him, if we love him, if we love him, we will keep the commandments. But the worst idea that we could ever do is to look at commandments as sort of this thing that we check off. To look at it the same way that that gentleman did there while we were eating pizza, as if these are the things to do, these are the things not to do. And what Paul says, as Paul describes, Paul gives a compliment. In verse 4, excuse me, I, I said 7, I shouldn't have uh, should said verse 4. He said, I thank my God always, making mention of you in my prayers. Now, that's not an uncommon term. I mean, Paul does that. Paul does that a lot. Because I hear of your love. Now, that's when we begin to understand, and Paul begins to tie what he's going to say in verse 9 with this compliment that he gives in verse 5. Because Paul says, because Paul is going to draw on his love, but Paul first commends him for his love, but he goes and he describes this love. He gives us a picture of what this love is. In verse 5, he says, because of your love and of the faith which you have toward the Lord Jesus and toward all of the saints. And I pray that the fellowship of your faith may become effective through the knowledge of every good thing which is in you for Christ Jesus. For I have come to have much joy and comfort in your love. Here he says it again, his love. Because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you, brother. Now understand, this is where the compliment comes from. This is where the power comes from. Where Paul says, I could command you to do it. But what Paul understood was he was dealing with someone who had already voted himself last. And that the needs of the saints were above his own. The needs of the church were above his own. The glory of God was above his own. His will was, you know, was second, third, and fourth in this entire process. And because of that, Paul could compliment on everything that was going on because the saints were being dealt with. The saints were being taken care of. The saints were being put first. God's purpose, God's will, God's mission in the lives and the hearts of his people were far more important to Philemon than his own personal agenda, his own personal desires. And in that vein, when that happens... Paul recognized that it is an absolute waste to try to command Philemon to do something that he is already predisposed to doing something out of love. And so instead of trying to command, Paul said, now understand, Paul was not bashful about that. Paul knew that if it came down to it, that's what we could have. Obedience. But Paul recognized that with with that, we would have met expectations. And Paul knew that if I can appeal to your love, we can exceed expectations. So this morning, I want you to understand the power of point number two. In your own personal life, the idea of love. And, and, and it's not the love that we talk about at, you know, at, at, at weddings. I mean, that's important when we go, love is patient, love is kind. And, and, and I appreciate that. I'm talking about the love where we put everything first. 
the love of things above self. Because when that happens, powerful things happen. When that happens, you know, great and wonderful things happen. There are things for which we could stand here and we could speak to with authority as if they were a command. The Bible asks us to be in the assembly. The Bible asks us to worship God. The Bible asks us to come together. The Bible directs us to do that. And we could talk about that. And we could go to Hebrews chapter 10. We, we could talk about that and we could, we could emphasize that. And if that's what it takes, yeah, that, that's fine. Or what we could say is now let's think about it from the concept of love. Jesus, you are all to us. We love God. And if we have that deep, just you know, you know, outpouring love for God, where else would we want to be right now than in worship of God? It, Paul spoke, uh, he, he did actually use kind of this passage uh, another place. He used it over in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 when he was talking about giving. And one of the things he said was, I could compel, I could order, I could you know, kind of direct, I could come over the top. But instead what Paul did was he appealed to their love. And in their love, he understood that the graciousness of their gift, the abundance of the gift, would far exceed that which would happen if he just simply compelled them. So this morning, my encouragement to you is to focus more on the love first than just the to-do or the to-don't. This morning, I could point to chapter and verse. And I could, just as an orator of God's word, nothing else, no other authority other than one who is reading his word, I could talk about reconciliation and the command to be baptized, to hear, to believe, to repent, to confess, and be baptized. We could talk about it that way. But I think what I'd rather do this morning is appeal to your love, to love of your own soul, to love of yourself, to love of the God who has redeemed you. And if you need to respond, respond in love to love as together we stand and sing.